0: Before we delve into the mind-blowing pearls of pediatric seizures from Dr. Michael Giannakis and Dr. Richet, I'm super psyched to announce. Ready for this? The first ever EM Cases EM course. EM Cases course. Cases. Yes, folks, this is the EM Cases podcast taken to the next level. In person small group, face-to-face, interactive, case-based discussions with your favorite EM cases guest experts. Walter Himmel, David Carr, Aaron Ciel, Don Milady, Sarah Reed, and a couple of new experts like airway guru George Kovacs, who I'm dying to have on the show. Now, this ain't no regular conference. There'll be no sitting amongst hundreds of people listening to one didactic lecture after another. This is your chance to engage in learning in small groups and get the highest level CME credits while you're at it. We'll have simulation workshops, the first ever live podcast recording with audience participation, and even a foam bar where you can learn about how best to navigate free open access medical education from one of our EM Cases team, Fomites. The date is February 6th, and the location is North York General Hospital in Toronto. Pediatric seizures are common, so common that about 5% of all children will have a seizure by the time they're 16 years old. If any of you have been parents of a child who suddenly starts seizing for the first time, you'll know intimately how terrifying it can be. While most of the kids who present to the ED with a seizure will end up being diagnosed with a benign, simple febrile seizure, some kids will suffer from complex febrile seizures requiring more thought... More workup and management, while others will have afebrile seizures, which are a whole other kettle of fish. We need to know how to differentiate these entities, how to work them up, and how to manage them in the ED. And then there's status epilepticus, a true emergency with a scary mortality rate where you need to act fast and know your algorithms like the back of your hand. So sit back and relax if you're driving, or get a good rhythm going if you're exercising while listening to this podcast. With the help of pediatric neurologist Lawrence Richer and pediatric emergency medicine national speaker extraordinaire Angelo Micrigianakis, we'll give you all the tools that you need to approach the child who presents to the ED with a seizure with the utmost confidence. The first case is an eight month old girl who's previously healthy and fully immunized, presents to the ED 90 minutes after parents witnessed her suddenly lose consciousness and start shaking. She's been febrile for four days, with no respiratory symptoms and no GI symptoms. Her mother remembers being told that she had febrile seizures when she was a toddler. On exam, she appears fatigued but alert, with no signs of respiratory distress and no signs of dehydration. Her vitals are normal for her age, and her temp is 37.4. She has a normal cap refill and normal color. Her ENT and resp exams are non contributory, and her belly exam is benign. Her neck is supple, and gross neurologic exam is normal. While you're explaining to the parents that their child has likely suffered a benign simple febrile seizure, she starts to seize again. So, what's your general take on this case? What are your thoughts?
1: Her first seizure in this febrile illness occurred fairly late in the febrile illness. That would be something to pay attention to, I think. The first seizure, nonetheless, in the context of that seizure, still sounds very much like a typical febrile seizure at that point. So usually in simple febrile seizures, it'll be right at the beginning
0: of the febrile illness that they'll have the seizure. Is that right?
1: Correct. Sometimes within hours, in which case they may not even have manifested any illness symptoms yet, and the first sign that they're sick was the seizure. More commonly, the seizures will occur within 12 hours of the onset of the illness, 12 to 24 hours.
2: This is a challenging case in that it shows the full spectrum of febrile seizures and how benign they could be if they're relatively straightforward and fit all the criteria versus the broad differential of having a fever four days. Is there a bacterial focus? Is this something more complicated that you need to work up and worry about? And so this is the type of case that would cause your listenership to pause and say, how much or how little do I have to do in this case?
0: Okay. And what would be some other historical or physical exam things that you'd want to know in this case that weren't presented?
2: Whenever you call it a febrile seizure, I like to document that there was a fever. So what the vital signs were at home, if the family recorded a temperature, or at least if they thought the child looked flush, felt warm. Sometimes with the initial reaction from the parents of seeing a seizure, they call EMS. I take a few minutes to go through the EMS record and see what the temperature was documented. You just want to make sure if you're going to put this in your benign category that fits for a classic a febrile seizure that you're not going to work up and not be worried about, that there actually is a fever and you're not painting this case with a broad brush and looking for the simple diagnosis when you should be considering the full differential.
1: Yeah, I think from the point of view of a pediatric neurologist, we're often called to consider the causes of the seizure, and with the seizure being the primary concern. And I would turn it back to the emergency physician and caregiver that the cause of the fever really is the primary issue at this point, and we can address the seizures thereafter. So I agree with Angelo that the cause of that fever needs to be well understood, and then we can go into managing the seizure aspects.
0: Absolutely. So in this case, the fever was for four days, which is unusual for a simple febrile seizure. They didn't actually have a documented fever in the emergency department, which makes you think maybe this could be an afebrile seizure. And there is more than one seizure in 24 hours, which will make you worry more about a complex seizure, right? Correct. So we've been talking about how this is probably a seizure. However, sometimes it's not so clear whether it's an actual seizure or whether it's a seizure mimic. How do we know that what the parents witness at home was actually a seizure as opposed to syncope or a breath-holding spell or something else? In other words, what are some of the more common and tricky pediatric seizure mimics and how do we differentiate them from
2: seizure? Very similar history uh, as you'd take in an adult patient for a clear description of the event, the timing and the sequence of everything that happened. Generally, the episodes involve tonic-clonic movement and they tend to be generalized in this age population where we're discussing febrile seizures or complex febrile seizures. It's hard in an eight-month-old to decide on incontinence. They're in a diaper and whether they had to previously wet their diaper afterwards. That's not usually one of the things you'll get on history. Your patient isn't going to add a lot of information, whether they felt an aura or how they, how they felt. So I asked the parents what they saw, what the hands, arms, and legs were doing at the time, what the eyes were doing at the time. So there's a large proportion of pediatric seizures that will involve some form of eye deviation to one side or the other or maybe even some uh, neck and head deviation to the other side and then what happened after the incident a rapid return to consciousness and interaction goes away from this being a seizure versus a sleepy cranky postictal phase can be more consistent with a seizure episode the eyes You know, sometimes I forget to ask about what the
0: child's eyes were doing at the time of the episode. Ask about whether the eyes were staring into space or deviated to one side, if they had big dilated pupils, or if the eyelids were flickering. These are all clues that can make it more likely to be a seizure. And don't forget to ask and look for lateral tongue biting. It's got a near 100% specificity for seizure. (laughs) Breath holding spells in particular, I find a little bit confusing. And somehow, when I'm about to make the diagnosis of breath holding spells, I'm always questioning myself whether I've really got the diagnosis. Can you give us some pearls about how to make the diagnosis of breath holding spells as opposed to seizure?
1: One of the key features of the breath holding spell versus the seizure is something triggered it, some emotional upset, pain. The child was disturbed in some way, and that is very uncharacteristic of seizures. Seizures come out of the blue. Breath-holding spells are triggered. There's something that leads up to them. Following that, the child may either become cyanotic, they may become pale, depending on the type of breath-holding spell they have. And particularly with the pallid breath-holding spells, where there's often quite a considerable decrease in heart rate and cerebral blood flow, they can go on to have what looks like a seizure, or it may actually be a seizure. So the characteristic feature there is what brought it on. So triggered, upset, crying, pallor, followed by loss of consciousness, and then seizure is a breath-holding spell, full stop, versus the event that began as generalized movements with associated loss of consciousness out of the blue, not triggered by any preceding uh, pain or or upset.
0: Got it. And how about pseudo-seizures? You know, in adults, we see quite a few patients with pseudoseizures. In kids, it might be slightly different how they tend to present. What, what's your experience in terms of differentiating a pseudoseizure from a true seizure?
2: We're fortunate in pediatrics that our patient population is somewhat a little more honest and doesn't always have the secondary gain depends on the age of the patient population we're talking about. Our younger patients here in terms of months or young children really don't have the developmental uh, capacity to feign seizures or do other things. And at the same time, rarely do they have syncopal episodes An eight month old doesn't get vasovagal. They're not standing up too quickly. They're not getting dizzy and doing other things. So, the differentials slightly different. That's where we talk about jitteriness, myoclonic jerks, startle episodes, breath holding versus seizures. Where we see the pseudo seizures is in our adolescent population. I would say mainly post pubertal, if I had to give it a, an age range where Usually, their level of consciousness is not what you'd expect it to be, or their ability to interact with the external environment is just a little bit fishy. Although they'll say they can't control a limb or they're having these twitchy episodes, that their ability to speak to you and talk through it raises a little red flag for what's going on here. What
1: I'd add to that is some of the characteristics of the movements that often For whatever reason will be repeated and are quite telling for a pseudo seizure. That is side to side head movements, eyes closed with the eye movements under the eyelids clearly happening, like a person who's asleep and moving their eyelids, moving their eyes, such as in REM sleep, I should say, and or side to side arm or leg movements where there's almost like a uh, bicycling like movement. Or if you were running on a treadmill kind of side to side movement, that is not a seizure type of any form.
0: So breath-holding spells typically occur in the 6- to 18-month age range and are almost always triggered by emotional upset or pain. So the kid's playing and falls over and hurts themselves. Typically what'll happen is the child cries, then holds their breath, then they become pale or cyanotic, they lose consciousness and become limp, and with that they may have a few tonic-clonic movements. One of the key distinguishing features is that recovery is rapid and complete, as opposed to a tonic-clonic seizure, which usually has a post-ictal phase. And same with syncope. Syncope may be associated with a few limb twitches, but recovery is rapid as compared to a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Now, it looks like this eight-month-old girl has suffered from a febrile seizure, which accounts for the majority of seizures we see in the ED. One of the most important distinctions we can make in the ED is that between a simple febrile seizure and a complex febrile seizure. Dr. Richet, can you remind our listeners how to distinguish between simple and complex febrile seizures?
1: Well, the key features of a simple febrile seizure is first the characteristics of the seizures is that it is a generalized seizure. So arms and legs are involved in convulsive movements. The patient is unconscious during this and following that is often a fairly uh, long postictal phase. So first is the generalized seizure. Then there's the characteristic age between 6 months and 5 years, and the fact that that seizure that they do have is a single event. It doesn't recur in a 24-hour period. As a rule, the seizure lasts less than 15 minutes, and following that seizure, the child will gradually return to a baseline of being well along with their febrile illness.
0: Now, we had talked about this a little bit in our episode on fever without a source. Dr. Microgenakis, does the height of the fever or the rapidity with which it rises correlate with the chances of a child having a seizure?
2: The height of the fever does not correlate. It can be with low-grade temperatures, mid-grade temperatures, as well as high fevers as well. So I think the evidence shows that there's a relatively even distribution across uh, 38 to 39, 39 to 40, and over 40 degrees. Rapidity is a little bit of a question because no one is doing serial temperatures on these children when they're in the normal state. Where we infer rapidity of onset is that these children otherwise look well at home. They're off playing with their siblings or in the other room, and parents' attention is drawn to them because they're having the seizure. And at that time, they feel warm, look flush, or even EMS might be the first documentation that there's a fever. So that's where the rapidity comes from. The seizure can come quite quickly out of the blue, and then you realize that your child's febrile and may have an intercurrent illness as well, as opposed to having documented serial temperatures at 15-minute intervals that said this child went from normal temperature to 39 in a, in a certain time frame.
1: What I'd add to that is while the rapidity of onset of the fever or how early in the course of the febrile illness, it may not predict who will get a febrile seizure, but it will predict who after their first febrile seizure is likely to have more. So if a child has their first simple febrile seizure early in the febrile illness, often before the first fever was documented, or it occurs at a very low temperature, say in the 38, 38 38.5 range those children tend to have more frequent recurrent simple febrile seizures. So you can predict that risk of recurrence and advise the family accordingly.
0: Okay. And in terms of telling the parents, you know, giving ibuprofen, for example, for their child who's had febrile seizures before, my understanding is that that will actually not change the risk of them suffering from a febrile seizure.
1: I think there's very good evidence that it's clear the ibuprofen or any antipyretic treatment does not have any effect on seizure recurrence. That could be for any number of reasons. So the reasons for using an antipyretic are simply for comfort measures, like you would any child who might benefit from that, but it won't prevent the seizure, and nor is it the parent's fault for not treating the fever early enough that their child had a seizure. And that's sometimes something that needs to be made clear that it wasn't their fault they didn't get on this soon enough.
2: We do see parents who, after the first febrile seizure, and we've had the discussion about the potential for recurrence that one-third of children may have another episode, want to take an aggressive approach and prevent this from ever happening to their child again. I think that places an undue burden on them. Um, It exposes the child to multiple repeat doses of something like acetaminophen that is not without side effects and toxicity in larger doses over prolonged periods of time. Time. So, really, the teaching is to undo that and say you cannot prevent this. Respond to your child like you would any other time as a comfort measure, not using ibuprofen or Tylenol as a prophylactic measure to maintain normal thermia. Let's talk
0: a little bit more about the underlying cause of fever in children who present with febrile seizures. Let's start with the question. Are kids with febrile seizures more likely to be suffering from a serious bacterial infection than a kid who presents with
1: a fever without a seizure? The children are not necessarily at greater risk for having an underlying bacterial meningitis as the cause of their seizure and fever. But I think it's fair to acknowledge the fact that the patient just had a brain symptom and they have a fever. So having a higher index of suspicion is reasonable, but the fact that they had a febrile seizure does not necessarily mean that their risk of having a serious bacterial meningitis is higher than any other person who has a fever.
0: If we know that the occurrence of a simple febrile seizure seems to contribute no independent risk for adverse outcomes from infectious causes, then the question arises, do we need to work these patients up for their fever? Well, once we're convinced that a child has had a simple febrile seizure and has returned to baseline function, we can essentially forget about the seizure and work up the fever like we would any patient who presents with a fever. So we might get a urinalysis, for example, if we can't find a focus for the fever. Next, we're going to talk about how to counsel the parents when it comes to disposition of a child with a simple febrile seizure. So Dr. Michael Giannakis, you spoke a little bit about how you counsel parents of kids who have had a simple febrile seizure. Let's say you've decided that the child in front of you has had a simple febrile seizure caused by a benign viral illness. You're ready to send them home. What do you tell them in terms of what to do if the child has a seizure again, what the chance of recurrence of the seizure or of epilepsy is, and whether or not future seizures can be prevented with benzodiazepines you already had mentioned whether they can be prevented by antipyretics and the answer is no so let's just start with what do you tell the parents in terms of what they should do if the child seizes again
2: this is standard seizure teaching whether it's a febrile seizure or a non-febrile seizure it's mainly safety first how they can put their child in the recovery position, not put anything in their mouth. Most of these seizures are brief, self-limited, and will resolve on their own. Early on, if they haven't dealt with this often and I'm still sensing anxiety, I usually tell them that they can call 911 and get some supports there. I don't counsel them to manage their children at home initially until we see where this pattern is going to go because we know that Children who've had one febrile seizure have a 33% chance of recurrence. We can't tell with the child in front of us which ones are the two-thirds that aren't going to have another febrile seizure and which ones are the one-third that will. There has been some evidence on a population basis that allows us to predict some chance for recurrence of febrile seizures. And the things that have been associated are... Number one. A younger age at onset of febrile seizures, so less than 18 months with the first febrile seizure. Number two. A lower temperature that triggers that febrile seizure, so temperatures lower than 40 degrees at first convulsion.
0: Number three.
2: Very quick movement to seizure, so less than an hour between the onset of febrile illness and the first convulsion.
1: Number four.
2: And the last item was in the case that you gave us, a first-degree relative with a history of febrile convulsions just leads to the higher genetic predisposition of being susceptible to further febrile seizures.
0: So actually, this case that we have, eight-month-old, that would be less than 18 months. The temperature was 37.4 when they arrived. We don't know what it was at home, but definitely less than 40. It was a short time between the onset of the febrile illness and the first convulsion and the first degree relative had a history of febrile seizures. So this little eight-month-old might actually have a higher than one in third chance of having a repeat febrile seizure. And this is the kind of kid who you may want to tell the parents that you could expect them to have repeated febrile seizures. So let's get back to our case of the child who you've decided probably has suffered a complex febrile seizure. Dr. Microgenakis, first, how do you work up these kids with complex febrile seizures? The big question is, do they need LPs to rule out meningitis? Do they need CTs of the head? What kind of workup do they need, if anything, in the ED?
2: When they come out of that Comfortable definition of simple febrile seizure, it opens up all the questions of how much or how little to do for these patients. So a complex febrile seizure usually adds the complexity in terms of this seizure was longer than 15 minutes, or it had some focal component to it, or they've had more than one seizure in a 24-hour episode. So this puts the onus on the eMERGE physician to rethink things, say how much or how little do I need to do. At the extremes of a sick child with an altered level of consciousness who looks exceedingly unwell, I would argue that the astute eMERGE physician would pick up on that and quickly do everything necessary to resuscitate and stabilize that child. The question comes in the gray zone should I or shouldn't I, or this child kind of looks okay, but not really. I take a stepwise approach to my investigations and use time and reassessment to help me decide how deep to go into my investigations. So the fact that they've had a complex febrile seizure tells me they're going to stay in the eMERGE department for a, a little bit longer, that I'm going to screen their labs, even though these are more rule-out tests with a low pretest probability than the likelihood of actually finding something, you're going to check their glucose, their sodium, their other electrolytes like calcium and magnesium. And while you're waiting for those results to come, you're going to be doing reassessments on this child to help you decide on the more invasive tests of LP or Because that child is going to tell you over a two to three to four hour period, either they're getting better and they have a normal neurologic exam without signs of raised intracranial pressure or other things to make you worry about a space occupying lesion or something going on in their central nervous system, whether it be infectious, metabolic or rare things like non-accidental trauma that you couldn't uh, have predicted or suspected. Or if it is of an infectious etiology, they're usually going to have a progressive course that you'll pick up on and say, this is the child that needs an LP. This is the child that needs a CT scan. So I... Start my investigations with uh, looking for the cause of the fever, blood and urine, frequent reassessments. And on the list is the potential for a CT scan or an LP, but I use time and reassessment to help guide me on which kids are going to need those tests or not. What I'd add to Dr. Microgenakis
1: is more from the perspective of the pediatric neurologist. And there are three scenarios where pediatric emergency physicians often call and ask. First scenario is that the febrile seizure is complex for reasons of frequent or multiple recurrences. Should that child be investigated from a seizure perspective? Do we need to look for other causes of seizure, which normally include would include an EEG and or some form of neuroimaging? That's scenario number one. And I can say that, that simply having had a cluster of febrile seizures, which is what made it the condition complex does not increase the yield on these tests whatsoever. The likelihood that this represents anything other than febrile seizures remains exceedingly low, and the yield on our tests, EEG and CT scans, is so low that their routine use simply for reasons that the seizure was complex or the febrile seizure was complex, I think there's no real indication for that. The other scenario, though, is the complex febrile seizure that is complex because it was a focal seizure. In that scenario, that changes things a little bit. The chances that there is a focal lesion of some form underlying this is high enough that I would typically recommend some form of neuroimaging and some form of electrophysiology to explore the underlying cause of that seizure being something potentially different than complex febrile seizure. And the third scenario I think is something that we'll be discussing later is that of the prolonged febrile seizure. So this febrile seizure that lasted longer than 15 minutes Often changes management, but I would say it's uh, very much like the scenario of recurrent febrile seizures within a 24 hour period, that the diagnostic yield on further tests from a seizure perspective remains exceedingly low.
0: So, suffice to say that the kid who needs the workup is the one who is quite sick and remains quite sick after reassessing the patient a few times in the emergency department. The kid who has focal signs or symptoms and the child who has a prolonged seizure more than 15 minutes. Those are generally the three categories that you'd be looking at to do a workup. The particular question I have in terms of the workup is when it comes to imaging. Now, in adults, you know, doing a CT scan on a 70-year-old, we have a pretty low threshold for that because we're not worried about radiation effects, et cetera, but in an eight-month-old, it's a whole different kettle of fish. What could you tell our listeners about whether to trigger getting a CT scan in the emergency department versus getting an MRI in a few days. Which kids would you pull the trigger and say, you know what, I'm willing to accept those radiation effects. We need the CT scan now versus those patients that can wait a few days.
2: The indication for CT scans in complex febrile seizures really depends mainly on your patient's clinical status. So if you suspect non-accidental trauma, then that child should be imaged. If that child had a focal component to their seizure and still has not returned to their usual baseline over a two to three hour window, then they should be imaged. And any evidence of raised intracranial pressure or mass effect on physical examination would be an indication to image that child with a CT scan.
0: Okay, so you don't necessarily need to scan in the ED the patient with a focal seizure unless they haven't returned to baseline after a couple of
2: hours. Yes, that's correct. You don't have to scan them all. As long as they've come back to normal, they have no ongoing deficits, and they have a normal physical and neurologic examination. I think the only thing I'd add to
1: that is if the child has a known underlying disorder, such as a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, that that child should be imaged at a much lower threshold?
0: Absolutely. So now for the case resolution. The eight-month-old child was diagnosed with a complex febrile seizure and was found to have a simple UTI. She was admitted with no further fever or seizures, had a negative septic workup aside from the UTI, and a normal EEG. A CT scan of the head was not done in the ED, nor when she was admitted. An LP was not done. She was discharged on oral antibiotics for her UTI, and she did well. It's time for the mid-podcast review. First, how can you distinguish a simple febrile seizure from a seizure mimic, like breath-holding spell or pseudoseizure? Well, Febrile seizures are almost always tonic-clonic, generalized. They often involve eye deviation, flickering of the eyelids, dilated pupils, or head and neck deviation, as well as a post-ictal phase and lateral tongue biting. Now, the key feature of a breath-holding spell is that it's almost always triggered by pain or an emotional event, as opposed to seizures, which occur out of the blue. Kids with breath-holding spells Look pale or cyanotic, then they go limp, and then sometimes they have a few limb twitches or even a full seizure. And what about pseudo seizures? These can sometimes be tough. They tend to occur in teenagers as opposed to little kids, and they can be distinguished from true seizures by looking at the limb and head movements and by looking at the eyes. You see, pseudo seizure movements tend to be side to side head movements or bicycling like movements of the legs or side-to-side, to-and-fro side, to movements of the limbs of some sort. Often the eyes of a teen with pseudoseizures are closed as opposed to open and deviated in a true seizure. Now let's just nail down the diagnostic criteria for a simple febrile seizure so that we can distinguish it from a complex febrile seizure. So simple febrile seizures are in the age group of 6 months to 5 years. It's a single seizure within 24 hours. They're generalized tonic-clonic, they last less than 15 minutes, and the child returns to baseline and has a normal neurologic exam, usually after a brief post-ictal period. So if any of these criteria are not true, that is, if there's more than a single seizure in 24 hours, if it's focal rather than generalized, if it lasts more than 15 minutes, or the child doesn't return to baseline, then we're thinking complex febrile seizure. Now, your general approach to simple febrile seizures is essentially to ensure that the child fits the defined criteria and then evaluate the patient as if they only had a fever. Some history pearls for febrile seizures are that they tend to occur early in the illness, in the first day that the kid's febrile, So if the seizure occurs more than 24 hours after the onset of fever, your suspicion for a bacterial cause of the fever and a pathologic cause for the seizure should be heightened. Remember that the height of the fever does not correlate with the chance of febrile seizure and that prophylactic antipyretics have not been shown to affect the incidence of recurrence. Simple febrile seizures are not an independent risk factor for serious bacterial infection and aggressive diagnostic workups are rarely indicated. Now what about when you're ready to discharge the patient with a simple febrile seizure? What do you tell the parents? Well first, safety. Show the parents the recovery position and remind them not to put anything in the child's mouth you may opt to tell the parents that the risk of recurrent febrile seizures is approximately 33% overall, but remember that the risk is higher in kids under 18 months, those with a temp of less than 40 at first convulsion, those with less than one hour between onset of the febrile illness and first convulsion, and finally, if a first-degree relative has a history of febrile seizures. If the parents ask you about the risk of epilepsy after their child has a simple febrile seizure, you can tell them it's about 2%, and that compares to a baseline risk of 1% in the general population. Now, what about the workup of a complex febrile seizure? The workup of kids with complex febrile seizures, according to our experts, should be a stepwise approach, keeping in mind that the younger the child, the more aggressive the workup should be. Many of these kids with complex febrile seizures can go home without extensive workup, especially the ones who returned to baseline in the ED and had no focal symptoms. While there's no increased risk of bacterial infection as a cause for the febrile seizure compared to kids who present with fever without a seizure, meningitis should always be on your radar in kids with complex febrile seizures. In fact, about a quarter of kids with meningitis will present as a new onset seizure, but will often either have persistent altered mental status or other concerning findings like petechiae, focal seizures, and nuchal rigidity. Well, that's it for the review of febrile seizures. Now we'll go on to non-febrile seizures. Ready? Go. On to case number two. A two-month-old, otherwise healthy, bottle-fed baby who was born at 40 weeks gestational age with no issues presents to your ED via EMS. First-time parents witnessed a three-minute tonic-clonic seizure. The infant had been well up to 24 hours prior when he became increasingly lethargic. He vomited once that morning. The parents report no fever, no respiratory symptoms, and no GI symptoms besides the episode of vomiting. On exam, the infant appears lethargic but rousable. Vitals are normal except for a slightly elevated heart rate. Rectal temperature is 35.1. Fontanelle is soft. Pupils are equal and reactive. Neck is supple. Tone and reflexes are normal. The skin, ENT, chest, and abdominal exams are unremarkable. So Dr. Microgenakis, what else would you want to know in this case? What else would you ask the parents And what would your most likely diagnosis be?
2: This patient's age and the type of seizure makes this more concerning and more likely to be pathologic in some sense. A two-month-old with a three-minute generalized tonic-clonic seizure doesn't fit into our definition of simple febrile seizures. This child's cool, if anything, they're not febrile. And by age, we're going to have to cast a broad net and keep a broad differential in mind. So... The birth history you gave us partly, a uh, term 40-weeker with no concerns. But issues at birth and issues such as birth asphyxia can lead to seizures later down the line. So those would be some of the things I'd investigate. Family history, uh, the likelihood of any metabolic abnormalities, any types of electrolyte disturbances uh, due to any sort of congenital illness, The whole differential is open here, so you have to manage two things. The patient in front of you, maintaining their ABCs and beginning your stabilization, resuscitation, as well as gathering as much information you can from the family and going into some uncomfortable places like the likelihood of non-accidental trauma or things that have come up suddenly for this child.
0: So you stabilize the patient... And you ask all those great questions to the parents, and you're not really coming up with anything. And the f- initial blood work comes back, and you notice that the sodium is 122. So Dr. Mike Duginakis, what's the slam-dunk diagnosis here? What are you thinking?
2: Three main things that I think about. Two organs and one cause that can be brought out in how the parents have been feeding the child. So when I see low sodiums, I think about their adrenal glands and their kidneys, and then I think about the possibility of dilution of their formula that's given them too much of a water load and dropped their sodium.
0: By asking the parents of an infant who have had a seizure the simple question of how do they mix the infant formula for feeding, you can clinch the diagnosis of hyponatremia secondary to over-dilution of the formula with water. Dilution of formula with too much water is a common cause of hyponatremic seizures in infants. And if the child's seizing in front of you, they should be treated with 3 milligrams per kilogram of 3% hypertonic saline as opposed to the usual benzodiazepines. In an old study out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine entitled Hyponatremia as the Cause of Seizure in Infants, they found that hyponatremia was the cause of seizures. In 70% of infants younger than six months of age who lacked other findings suggesting a cause. They also found that a temperature of 36.5 or less was the best predictor of hyponatremic seizures. So the low temp of the infant in our case was a clue to hyponatremia as a cause for their seizure. Now, while simple febrile seizures are by far the most common cause of seizure in young children, We always need to be on the lookout for other causes of seizure, and seizures can be the result of pretty much any toxic congestion, any space-occupying lesion of the brain, metabolic disorders, shaken baby, the list is very long. So in your history, you'll be screening for these things. Dr. Richet, what about the physical? EM providers sometimes overlook the importance of a good physical exam, What are some physical exam pearls to look for in the child presenting with a seizure where the cause isn't immediately obvious?
1: First thing I'd look at is the skin. Coming from the same embryologic layer, skin and brain often share abnormalities. A scenario of a two-month-old presenting with a seizure, I would agree there are few, if any, benign scenarios under the age of six months. This is a child that's got a concerning presentation that needs to be investigated So looking at the skin, you might see hypopigmented macules, which might suggest a disorder known as tuberous sclerosis. You might see hyperpigmented macules, which would reflect disorders like neurofibromatosis. The classic hyperpigmented macule is the cafe au lait spot. And that just looks, as the name would imply, like a sort of coffee with milk in it. Another is the so-called port wine stain, which would be concerning particularly if it was found on the forehead in that that stain can be associated with vascular abnormalities of the brain.
0: So in terms of your first just look at the child, I mean, I think that's great. Even though these are rare things, it's fantastic that you could make a diagnosis of an infant with a seizure just by looking at their skin and recognizing that they might have a port wine stain or a cafe au
1: lait spot. Exactly. And it would certainly guide your further management. You may guide yourself directly to neuroimaging as being your next priority test, as opposed to chasing other metabolic disorders or other rare causes of seizures.
0: Okay. So that's the skin. How about the head, eyes, neck, anything else that we can quickly look at from an emergency perspective that might really help us nail a diagnosis in an infant with a seizure?
1: Certainly the eyes can be a window to what's going on in the brain. Looking for papilledema or retinal hemorrhages as a sign of non-accidental injury would be helpful in narrowing your differential diagnosis. The size of the head can also reflect what's going on with regard to brain growth. So taking a quick measurement of the head and finding out that the child's head growth is smaller than it should be for age can really indicate a condition known as microcephaly, and that condition certainly can be associated with early-onset seizures. The other would be a large head, that is a head in which the head circumference is larger than it should be for age, which can imply things like arrested hydrocephalus, or it could be that the brain itself is overgrown, which also can be associated with seizures. Other things like dysmorphic features on the face or positioning of the ears can be helpful. Simply Noting them, I think, would guide your your investigations and you'd start to consider things like chromosomal abnormalities or underlying genetic causes. Finally, any suggestion of trauma, bruises, cuts, where they shouldn't be, would be important to document.
0: So look at the skin for funny lesions. Look at the head for a funny looking kid or a kid that looks like they have a huge head or a kid that looks like they have a tiny head. And the eyes, as you said, are the gateway to the brain, even though we know it's very difficult to get a good look at the retina of these patients, uh, we should try and look for papilledema and retinal hemorrhages, which may be an indication of non-accidental trauma or raised intracranial pressure. So let's talk a little bit about workup for these patients. For a child who presents with a simple febrile seizure, we rarely need to do a workup for the seizure itself. And we talked about which kids we need to work up with a complex febrile seizure. What about the non-febrile seizure? What lab tests should we consider in the non-febrile child who presents to the ED with a first-time seizure?
2: The workup of a first non-febrile seizure really depends on the age group that the patient population is in. Under six months of age, there's a high incidence of finding a pathologic cause. All those seizures are atypical and there's no benign explanation. So those children require a thorough workup with a broad differential diagnosis. As you get slightly older and it's a first-time seizure in children under two, we do screen their electrolytes, their glucose, their sodium, their calcium and magnesium, just to set a baseline and say we've looked at these causes and all their blood work is normal. Over two years of age with a brief, self-limited, first-time, non-febrile seizure where the episode happened at home and in front of me this child is GCS 15, completely neurologically intact and has an absolutely normal neurologic examination from head to toe, the yield of the blood work and electrolytes on that patient is quite low so that patient we set up more for outpatient follow-up in terms of EEG and the potential for MRI and neuroimaging whereas the younger children are more likely to get a much more thorough workup and a decision whether they need to be admitted for part of their workup.
0: So we already talked about which kids with febrile seizures might require a CT head. Dr. Rache, what about kids with non-febrile seizures? Do they all require a CT head
1: in the ED? I would say no. I think you can use some judgment there. Under the age of two years, I have a much higher index of suspicion of an underlying cause for seizures. There are few, if any, benign seizure disorders that will present under the age of two years. If, for whatever reason, there's concern for trauma, for example, then doing a CT scan in that urgent care setting is appropriate. If the child is returning to baseline, otherwise looks well, and the suspicion for things like trauma or hemorrhage would be low, then waiting to do a better test such as an MRI would be reasonable. However, some of the reasons to do an urgent CT scan would include a focal seizure, as we've discussed previously, or persistent seizure activity. Or the residual focal neurologic deficit. A VP shot, for example, would be another reason to do acute imaging. If you observe some abnormalities on the skin, that might suggest a neurocutaneous disorder or other signs or symptoms suggestive of raised intracranial pressure. Certainly, as I said earlier, the history of trauma or suspected history of trauma travel to an area endemic for cysticercosis, Patients with immunocompromise. And lastly, the kids who are at risk for bleeding or those who have a hypercoagulable state like sickle cell disease would likely benefit from an urgent CT scan.
0: And Dr. Microgenakis, for kids who present with the first-time episode of non-febrile seizures, how likely are multiple recurrences? Like, what factors increase the risk of recurrence, and how do you decide which ones, if any, require being started on an anti-seizure medication?
2: Again, from the emergency department perspective, it's hard to predict, but we know that approximately 50% of the children who have an afebrile seizure will have a recurrence. The question is when it will occur and how often it will occur. So on the first presentation to the eMERGE department, we do not routinely start anticonvulsive medications. We arrange for their further assessment with either general pediatrics or neurology in terms of an EEG and a consideration for advanced imaging such as MRI, and then that patient declares themselves either at high risk on that testing or through recurrent seizures that they will require some sort of empty epileptic medication, but we do not start it routinely in the eMERGE department for the first episode of non febrile seizures
0: yeah it's actually my understanding that the medications that we use for adults sometimes who present to the emergency department with seizures they can actually increase the chance of kids having more seizures like dilantin and carbamazepine for example is it true that they can actually increase the chance of a kid having a seizure
1: There are rare circumstances where a drug like Dilantin or Tegretol may increase seizures. in A very particular set of seizure disorders, the most common of which being juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. So those are adolescent teens who have generalized seizures, typically in the morning, generally have a history of staring spells. Starting Tegretol in that patient population might bring out myoclonic seizures and increase their uh, seizure frequency.
0: So suffice to say, it's a pretty complicated decision-making process, which medications you're going to start which kids on, and there's some actual potential harm we can cause by starting a teenager, for example, on Dilantin.
1: Exactly. So you've stabilized the patient, the patient's returned to baseline, taking the time to get the tests you need to assess that risk of recurrence clearly, categorize that epilepsy as best as you can, is worth doing and simply starting the medication and emerge most of the time is not the best thing to do.
0: Okay. So no starting anti-epileptics in the emergency department. This is a kind of decision that the pediatric neurologist or the pediatric clinic will decide. Let's talk disposition for these first-time non-febrile seizures generally speaking, what factors do you consider when deciding on disposition for the child with a non-febrile seizure?
2: The main factors are the ones that drove my pretest probability and my need to work them up. Younger patients less than six months are all getting worked up and likely admitted for observation and specific diagnosis. Six months to two years, requires some consideration of electrolytes and normal blood work, a reassessment, and then a close time to follow-up and a clear plan for follow-up. Whether locally your listeners can do that as an outpatient or whether those patients need to be admitted would be a more of a local decision. Over two years of age, uh, not first non-febrile seizure in a child who's returned to normal, has a completely normal neurologic examination. I'm counseling those families on seizure safety, activity safety, supervision, and what to do if the seizure recurs, and I'm discharging those patients to outpatient follow-up.
0: All right, folks, rather than go through the details of an entire case, just imagine yourself in the resuscitation room with a three-year-old that won't stop seizing. The parents are freaking out. The nurses are asking you what meds you want. You're sweating. What are your priorities of management going to be in this case?
2: This is the classic emergency physician scenario where our skill set Uh, shines in terms of assessment of the ABCs, uh, supporting this patient, getting them on cardiac monitoring, applying oxygen, and then working to figure out why this child is seizing at the same time you're trying to stop the seizures. Where some of the more recent changes have come, the primary focus was on IV access and initiation of intravenous medications There's been a movement to starting the first dose of benzodiazepines as early as possible and using non-traditional routes and then allowing yourself time after your first dose of benzos, either intranasally or by the buccal route, and then going for the IV access. Because it gives you a few minutes after your first dose. Traditionally, a three-year-old in any resuscitation room is a stressful scenario. And trying to get IV access on a chubby three-year-old that's seizing tends to be the rate limiting step that stresses out the eMERGE department. New studies that show the effectiveness of buccal and intranasal midazolam allow us to get the benzos on board and then work on IV access and check a glucose to make sure that the hypoglycemia is not the cause of their seizures.
0: Status epilepticus is a serious entity with mortality rates ranging from 10 to as high as 40%, depending on the etiology. Prolonged seizures can lead to lactic acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, hyperkalemia, hyperthermia, and hypoglycemia, and as a result, permanent neurologic damage. Now, things have changed over the years when it comes to how we define status epilepticus. It used to be defined as any seizure lasting longer than 30 minutes. Nowadays, the definition has sort of changed. Dr. Roche, how has the definition of status epilepticus changed in recent years, and how does this new definition affect our management strategy in the emergency department?
1: Certainly, we know a seizure lasting 30 minutes can be harmful to the brain, but you wouldn't want to wait that long to treat it. And I think that's where more operational definitions of status epilepticus or impending status epilepticus is a far more useful definition in the emergency setting. Setting the operational definition at five minutes means that child's going to be treated urgently with benzodiazepines and appropriate management to try to limit the duration of that seizure before it gets to a stage where it's potentially damaging to the brain.
0: Okay, so from a practical point of view... The patient who starts their seizure in the emergency department, you don't have to be treating that as status epilepticus right off the bat, because most of those will resolve in a couple of minutes. But certainly, once they're getting up to four or five minutes, you got to be prepared to start your status epilepticus algorithms. You had mentioned the buccal route, the intranasal route. There's also the rectal route, rectal diazepam, and there's IM midazolam. If you were to give an emergency physician, one easy, quick route and one easy, quick drug, what would it be?
2: The good news is that multiple studies have shown them all to be effective. In my practice, the Intranasal route of midazolam, 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, is the quickest and easiest route to get a good benzodiazepine concentration in your patient's circulation and try and stop the seizures.
0: Okay, so you're a fan of intranasal. The other options are I am midazolam. That's my go to first anti seizure medication for someone who doesn't have an IV, and that's 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram.
2: I know that there's a lot of local preferences or physician preferences in terms of what their first go-to route of giving benzodiazepines. There's 20 studies in the literature and the good news is that all of these routes have been shown to be relatively effective. Some of them compared head to head. The main message that needs to be delivered is early dose of benzodiazepines, stop seizures. And what we're trying to get away from is our EMS colleagues or our emergency medicine colleagues from fumbling for the IV on this challenging child for two to four to five minutes and get the benzodiazepines on board by your preferred route, whether it be intranasal or buccal or intramuscular, get the benzos on board, then work on your IV access and continue to flow through your status epilepticus pathway.
0: So let's say you've given your first dose of benzodiazepines and three minutes later, your patient is still seizing. What
2: would your next move be? I would repeat a second dose of benzos. If we have IV access, then IV would be my preferred method, you could also repeat the non-IV routes as opposed to not treating the seizure. Evidence shows that as the seizure is prolonged and as you've gotten through your second to third dose of benzos, if they haven't been effective at that point, they're less likely to be effective. So at my second or third dose of benzos, I'm preparing for second line medications at this point in time.
0: Okay, and what would your second-line medications be? So let's say you've given IM-midazolam, then your nurses get an IV, and you give IV-ativan. Patients still seizing, you've given good doses. What would your next go-to be?
2: The second-line agent of choice is phosphenatoin, 20 milligrams per kilogram, IV, or IM.
0: So I know that some of us can't get phosphenatoin in our EDs, It's interesting that you said IM because it's my understanding that phenytoin cannot be given IM. And so that's a huge advantage in case you have a kid without an IV, then phosphenytoin would be the go-to drug. What does the literature say about phosphenytoin versus phenytoin? Let's say you've got a kid with an IV and you're trying to decide between phenytoin or phosphenytoin and you have access to both.
2: They're the same active medication. So as far as efficacy goes, they should be equally effective. The issue is in the side effect profile and in the way you can give the medications. Phenytoin is the active drug, but it can precipitate if it's in an IV solution that contains dextrose. It can cause some cardiac arrhythmias or hypotension. And if it extravasates, it causes a purple gloves syndrome and a lot of tissue necrosis. And it has to be given at a slower rate for the patient to tolerate it. Phosphenatoin, on the other hand, is a prodrug which is metabolized within the patient to phenytoin. So, as a prodrug, it can be given faster than phenytoin can. It doesn't cause the precipitation in IV fluids. And it can be given intramuscularly, which really changes the ball game for managing pediatric patients who are challenging for IV access when you can get to a second line drug without needing IV access.
0: So let's say you've given your benzodiazepine, you've gone on to a second dose of benzodiazepine, then you've gone to your phosphenatoin. And if you don't have phosphenatoin, then phenytoin. What would the indication for phenobarb be? You know, a lot of these algorithms have phenobarb after your benzos and your phosphenatoin or phenytoin. In what kids would you recommend trying phenobarb to stop status epilepticus?
1: I would normally recommend phenobarbital as a second-line agent rather than dilantin in the very young infant. There is some data to show that dilantin is less effective in aborting a febrile seizure when compared with phenobarbital. So if given the choice, I would probably use phenobarbital first if someone presented with febrile status epilepticus. And the third scenario where I choose phenobarbital first, if this patient has previously come to the eMERGE and responded to that agent, I would listen to that rather than follow the algorithm. Those children, often with brittle epilepsies or very intractable epilepsies, It's very important to take their history in mind in choosing your your next agent.
0: Okay, great. So we'll have the algorithm in the show notes. And just like any guideline in emergency medicine, there are exceptions to the rule. So phenobarb, we should use for kids who have responded to phenobarb before. We should consider maybe using it in kids with febrile seizures who are in status, as well as the neonate. So let's say we've given multiple doses of benzos, we've given phosphanatoin, maybe we've given phenobarb as well, and there's 30 minutes that have passed. The child is still seizing, the PICU is full, the intensivist comes down to help, but you're on the hook to continue to manage the patient in the ED. Now we're into the zone of refractory status epilepticus. What are the treatment options for refractory status epilepticus?
1: Well, first and foremost, i turn to my pediatric emergency medicine college and make sure this patient has had their ABCs addressed. And, you know, this is a patient we're, we're heading towards. Certainly, if they're not intubated, they will very soon need to be, and so on. The two next agents that I would consider would be midazolam, an intravenous infusion of midazolam, or an intravenous infusion of pentobarbital.
0: Okay. And we'll have the dosages in the show notes, but just to give our listeners an idea of what kind of high dose midazolam infusion we're talking about, what kind of doses are we talking about?
2: For refractory status epilepticus, we would start the midazolam infusion at 120 micrograms per kilo per hour and would titrate upwards every five minutes until the patient's seizures had stopped.
0: Now, the new kid on the block, based on one study from 2013 in adult patients with refractory status epilepticus, is ketamine of all things. Do you have any experience using ketamine in refractory status epilepticus?
1: I've only had experience on one occasion with using ketamine in the most intractable of scenarios where this patient had been seizing now for days and it didn't work.
0: So although that's only an N of 1, it's interesting to hear. Perhaps there'll be some studies in the pediatric literature, although this is something that's very difficult to study because thankfully we don't see too many kids in refractory status epilepticus. So let's say finally your patient stops seizing. You breathe a sigh of relief, only to be reminded that your care of this patient is not over. Once you've stopped a patient from seizing, what are your priorities then?
2: Once the seizures have stopped, that's a time to circle back in this high-stress situation. Make sure you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. When we get to refractory status epilepticus, I always go back and think about some of the rare causes. Most of the kids we see that seize have epilepsy or have cerebral palsy or some sort of underlying disorder. When you get to refractory status epilepticus, I think of some of the rare things we've seen in terms of hyponatremia, hypocalcemia. We've seen hypertensive encephalopathies. And I just go back and re-ask myself, why did this child seize for so long? Make sure I've thought about some of the reversible causes and then go back and make sure that we've dotted the I's and crossed the T's in terms of the patient's Airway assessment, are they protecting their airway? Have we secured their airway, their vital signs, and then preparing them for transport to a tertiary center?
0: Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Microgianakis and Dr. Richet. Don't forget, please check the EM Cases website starting in November to secure one of the only 45 available spots for the first ever EM Cases course. I'm really looking forward to meeting you, the EM Cases listeners, in person to hear about your experiences in EM. So until next time, take it easy.